Ralph Dunning is one of the people in the clothing business that I most admire. It actually took us a long time to first meet, but when we did, it was so obvious that we have such a strong shared viewpoint of the clothing world, the business world, how to live your life, and so many other things that it was an instant connection for us. Since we've met, we've become friends, and I have followed what he's been doing with his new brand called Foreign Rider so closely because he's been totally open and transparent about what he's building, where he's making things, who he's doing business with, and the whole process. It's It's been an open book. It's not a marketing scheme it's not radical transparency it's just i'm doing something real and i'm going to share it with people and the people that care about where the things that they buy come from will understand and appreciate that here's our conversation around what ralph is building at foreign rider the future of manufacturing in canada in the united states in sustainability and a lot of other topics I think you will find interesting. I hope you like it. Ralph Dunning, thank you for joining me. Thanks for for having me here, Michael. You know, this is the least listened to podcast that uh, people pay for on earth, I think. <laughs> I, I have that honor. <laughs> someone someone wrote me and said, uh, my girlfriend asked me why I'm paying for you to try to sell, for me to sell them stuff. That doesn't seem like a smart financial decision. I think that I listen to a lot of podcasts and that... <laughs> and this is what we talk about in that BU workshop I'm telling you about that we're doing, that I think that you're still one of the best kept secrets in this whole space of, of what ACL has always stood for and, and what this podcast is, is doing, right? So the amount of people that I know that are looking for stuff like what you've been talking about for the last while on your podcast, but also what you've been writing about for over a decade I think the timing for this, for what you're doing, it, it honestly couldn't be better. And and so what is this going to look like in a year for, for you with what you're doing with this? I, I think it's it's super important right now. I might avert homelessness from my family in a year. <laughs> you know, I wonder I wonder what's going to happen if I die the best kept secret, you know, um, then then what? You know, yeah. well, you're you're so you're a, an original ACL follower, which is cool. And when I first met you, I think that sort of set the stage for our friendship later. And just we had sort of a uh, familiarity with each other, I think, because of that, which is pretty funny. And it's it's fun as fun for me as it is for people that read the site that actually then you know we we meet and whatever. So what made you? I mean. It's actually, I know the story of how you found the blog, but how did you find the blog and what made you, what about it is interesting to you? The, the brand that I had before, I had a golf company, as you know, and we were starting to look at doing some really old school preppy stuff. And my dad's best friend ran Terminal and Asser. And so I knew a lot about that space because I'd always grown up around that. And 
I wanted to just dig deeper into American prep versus British prep. And, and there's a difference between the two, but they complement each other. So, you know, I'd heard about this book, Take Ivy, and, and my wife, Lisa, she just Googled Take Ivy and found your site and said, you need to, <laughs> you need to see this site. And, um, and it was at a time for me, late 2000s, when I had built a company that used to make everything locally when I started done in golf in 2001, that we were doing everything locally. Where's locally in, for you? I know, but yeah, uh, in Toronto. <laughs> so, <laughs> so manufacturing here in Toronto, that was just normal for us that, that we were making everything here. We were knitting all the fabrics here. And, and that was just the norm for me being in the apparel space and tech space for a long time. So finding what you were writing about at ACL, that, really reconnected me to why local manufacturing, how stuff is made, what are the principles behind the companies that, that what drives those guys to do all these things that all of a sudden finding all these brands that you were talking about on, on the site, that was amazing to me because I felt like I'd been looking for that for a long time, but that window in the two thousands, man, a lot of bad shit was going on sort of mass market was out of control. And, and yeah. you know, we were guilty of that on the Dunning side that, that when Zach won the masters it all of a sudden we're doing a volume of product that locally we just couldn't maintain. So we had to go overseas. So, so finding ACL just really just reconnected me to what I loved about why I was in apparel in the first place. And that was to just to build a good product. So you, you, the same thing that launched, and we're going to talk about your new venture, one of your new ventures, because you're, you're doing a few new things uh, now, which is, is cool to see, but you're launching, or you just launched a brand that you've been working on for a long time called Foreign Rider. And when I say just launched, you just started selling online, um, but also opened a store in Toronto and yeah. you, you really building that up and, and, and moving forward with that. But to go back a little bit, it's interesting. I know that the genesis for Foreign Rider is the same thing that got you into uh, got you into making clothes for golf, and sort of is in a way like your entree into the clothing business, and that's uh, endurance racing or just in endurance training, right? What's yeah. the what's the genesis for you there? Like, well, how did you just have a lot of time to think when you're running, so it makes you, it makes you dream up things. So there's a there's a pretty long history to to getting into apparel in the first place and and just being someone that always admired certain brands. I really liked back in the eighties what Polo was doing and I liked what Timberland was doing and um and then I discovered Stussy in the early nineties and really liked what those guys were doing. Just like when you think what they were doing, what Sean was doing in the early nineties pretty workwear inspired and and there was a lot of military feel to construction. And I, that just really, for me, was just sort of the evolution of going from being preppy in the eighties to, to where things were going for me. Cause at that time I was working for one of the big record labels, which at, um, when I started there was RCA records and then it became BMG music. But when I was there in the early nineties, I mean, we had tribe called quest on our label and, and I had a front row seat to just watching how music and sports and, and, and apparel was all starting to, to come together. 
watching that launch of, of, of Supreme, how they were just so focused on their customer. And I decided that when I was in the music industry, I wanted to start my own brand. And, and that first brand was called RH Rip and Hammer. That was a technical cycling and triathlon company. And I, I had no background in, in apparel whatsoever, other than, you know, my dad's friend being at Turnbull and Asser, who sort of gave me a front row seat to how you should do things. And those guys didn't really mess around. They were, they were the real deal when it came to shirts and ties and all the stuff they were doing with Winston Churchill and the Royal family and all the James Bond stuff. Like they were real. So I had that brand for eight years. And, um, and then when I started Dunning golf, it was just to take that technology from cycling and triathlon. And then we were going to build a golf company that was all around technology. What was the golf space like at that point? Just to interject quickly. Well, I mean, what was everyone else doing when you were thinking like, let's make it super technical. He's Ralph's laughing. So it, it was, I mean, I didn't have a playing background at all and I didn't know the industry and I didn't really know anything about the game other than I'd been out a few times. And, but because I was in Hawaii at the Ironman and it was incredibly hot that I played a lot of golf there and thought golf is incredibly difficult, like incredibly difficult. And I sort of compared it to cycling because there was a heritage to both of those sports, but Cycling's always evolved with technology and you've seen what Allied and Rafa and Albion and all these companies are doing. But golf at that time was all cotton-based, Ashworth and, and some other brands. But we weren't just trying to get people to buy a brand. We had to get people to understand that, that there was a place for technology in the golf space. So for the first five years, people laughed at the idea of synthetics and polyester and it wasn't old school polyester. It was state of the art technology. And so we had to fight through all of that. And it wasn't until really 2007 when Zach Johnson won the masters that, that the industry started to go, he dressed different and they were paying attention to it, but, but there really was a technical background in what we were doing. So with other companies coming in, and wanting to be in the technology space and, and golf evolved into technology that there, there really was a point of difference of where my background came from and what other companies were doing where they were just using moisture management through chemical treatments and things that are actually, you know, not the best for the planet. So I don't, so think, people, I don't think people understand that though, really that some moisture wicking fabrics are treated and eventually that treatment will wash away and then the fabric won't function to its original tent intent. And then there's other engineered fabrics. Can you explain that? So when it comes to moisture management, breathability, and, and having a fabric that's going to actually perform over time, that if you use a chemical treatment, that that's the less expensive way to do it. So someone takes a piece of, of polyester that they buy off a header card from overseas they put chemical treatments on it and then they turn it into a garment. And then after five washes and, and everyone's experienced this, that has worn a tech shirt after five washes, their shirt smells bad. They end up throwing it into the garbage. It ends up in a landfill. Just the whole process is bad. What, what I've always done because in the triathlon and, and cycling space, you can't really fake technology with those guys because they were out riding five hours. They're racing, it's a huge part of their life. So they want good technology. So in cycling, 
good technology is pretty much used by everybody. But in golf, the problem was most companies wouldn't spend the money to buy an inherent fiber. So it's actually a part of the garment. They didn't understand how to engineer that, but they also just wouldn't spend the money on, on that fabric to be able to get it to perform at the level that, that we would. So there's, there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that happens with technology. And I think in the outdoor space that the better brands have always been aware of that, but in golf, it just wasn't the case as, as we all saw. And we were always at the forefront of that. And, and a, a fabric being expensive, like, what do we talk? Like, I, I don't think people, I have a sense of what it costs to buy a polo shirt, like what it costs to make it and what yeah. the actual cost is. Um, and I don't think people realize that when you're saying like, it would be too expensive, you're talking about like $2 more expensive, right? Like, no, I'm talking what, like that. And I could answer this question literally for a week. So the, the <laughs> difference between a chemically treated fabric that usually runs about a dollar to three dollars a yard, and in a polo shirt or a t-shirt that's technical, you usually use about 1.1, 1.2 yards to make up that garment. Technical fabrics that that I've always used, that we've always engineered, have, have always been with this um, fabrics being around six or or seven dollars a yard so you're talking like a a five dollar difference um there's someone at the door michael like can you just can we pause this one second yeah we can pause it no problem so the difference the the difference is is huge in I mean, I, I think it is a huge difference but it's also I think to people maybe they don't under understand how uh a price difference like $3 to $7 gets magnified into a garment, right? And like what that yeah. ends up costing. And and so you can look at a shirt that is going to be probably anywhere from 8 to $10 for some companies to make. And that's probably even being generous that, that some of those shirts people are making for 6 or $7 as a finished garment. But with the process that we've always used for the last 30 years in, in manufacturing that, that there's the cost of the fabric and then there's the, the type of factories that you also choose to use. So you can see where some companies are making their shirts for five or six or $7 and our costs were always triple what that would be because the fabric is triple the price and then you have all the sewing costs, right? So, so if you look at a brand, like Lululemon that I think are, are still probably one of the most technical companies in the world. They can sell at the prices that they're selling because they're a D2C model, right? Um, as soon as you start to put in that wholesale model, as you know, then that's when you start to see prices that, that really escalate. And that's one of the big positives of the DDC setup just is that you can, you can build a lot into a product that, within the wholesale system isn't going to be feasible from a price standpoint, right? So you could do a lot more or, or just put a lot more in um, than you would otherwise do, but you're, you're making stuff now in Toronto. And so what's, what's that like? It can't be inexpensive to make things there. So manufacturing in, in Toronto was important for me for a few reasons, because it allows us to have a, real relationship with 
the mill who knits the fabric, the dye house that's that's obviously dyeing the fabric, and dyeing locally lets us control water consumption and all the things that you hear about. And then um, by using a sewing factories or sewing facilities here, we can go to those factories. And it's it's tough right now because of of what's going on with um, with COVID, but before you were always able to have access to the factory floor and, and you build relationships with people that are on the floor. So you could see the people that were in pattern making that you could meet the people that were in cutting, you could meet the sewers, you could go back and talk to the people that were in packing and trimming. And all of a sudden you've got this relationship building and, and those guys are treating the product a lot different than just if you're a commodities brand that's producing in, in mass markets all over the place. So the cost of, of manufacturing locally is for us, it's four to five times the cost of what we would do something overseas. But the control, it allows us to obviously reduce carbon emissions when you start to look at companies that, that talk about being responsible, how many things are involved in, in being responsible. But if you can start to tick off all these areas where you're reducing your impact. I think that shipping products from overseas, shipping fabric from overseas, that then all of a sudden you're producing locally and it's having significantly less impact on what you're doing. But in addition, you can also control the quality of, of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. On top of that, that we actually understand how to engineer fabric. So most companies, as you know, they're making even basics like we're doing right now with the seven core essentials. They just, again, go by fabric headers and, and they make their product. We're getting all of our fabrics that are, are engineered and made specifically to, to what we want. That's a big difference that you would see from, from, and I don't like this word, but that's what luxury brands talk about doing. But the word luxury now, in my opinion, fast luxury um, fashion sort of all need to go, <laughs> right? Um, when we can control this much better, I think the outcome of what we're able to produce being the sum of all parts is, is very different. That's hard to do overseas. Yeah. It's worth the cost of business to do it the way that we're doing it with, with what we're doing here at FR. So the, the it's, FR as a brand though, isn't technical really. Uh, it's, it's actually sort of post-technical, right? In a way. It, yeah. So there, there's really two sides to what the company is, is going to look like, but you have to start small, small for a reason, be focused on, on producing less garments. So for me, and, and this is kind of ironic that I've been in the tech space for 30 years and I decided to launch FR through natural fabrics. And I think that if, if you spend a lot of time playing golf, surfing, trail running, riding, all the stuff that we do, that what's the last thing you're, you want to do when you finished wearing a tech shirt for five hours? You're going to pull on another tech shirt? No. I, I think that your body actually starts to crave natural fabrics. And, and the outdoor industry, if you look at their evolution over the last 10 years, there was a lot of synthetic. There's much more natural fabric now. So for building post-ride comfort that we wanted to build stuff that you could wear every single day, 
um, after you ride or even when you're just wanting to wear stuff that is just comfortable. So that's why we ended up picking Supima cotton and using organic French terries and the, the stuff that we're doing. But at the same time, we've been working on, on engineering really, really technical fabrics that we'll come out with in the spring. And, and that just goes back to my, my background in, in the tech space where we're developing stuff that, that really no one else is, is doing. That's cool. I, the, it's interesting because the concept of this makes total sense to me, but it's not really anything I had thought of until I started to do it and still in, until you sort of turned me on to the idea of and gave me some of the prototype product way back when, yeah. um, you know, after like a long day of, even if it's like you're moving or you're doing anything that's sort of physical, um, you, you know, the idea of just taking a shower, putting on something soft and it being natural fabrics ended up being such a light bulb for me too, where I'm like, now, you know, I, I actually went through that process and then experienced it and sort of came to the realization that, now I understand what Ralph is doing with this. At first, sort of, I thought, well, I don't know if this makes sense to me. And then you do it and you're like, oh, that, now it makes makes a lot of sense. You know, just, and it, just the idea of natural fabrics is is appealing. Um, and you're doing it with these, these companies and manufacturing partners in Toronto that have a lot of history. A lot of history. So that, and I really learned this from just, studying what what my dad's friend ken williams was doing when he ran turnbull and asser and he always talked about everything starts with the materials and, and with the fabric so so what makes a really great piece of of clothing the fabric how it drapes how it fits and the fit is going to be dependent on the fabric and then you can figure out what the construction is going to look like whether you're using flat lock stitching or serge or, or whatever that looks like but all those things become a huge part of that so when you've got local mills that have been doing this for decades that really understand how to knit really high quality cotton and and the cottons that we're using are all american so the supima and and supima for those that don't know only grows in certain parts of the world the hand on supima is just really really incredible some guys, they'll take Supima, send it overseas, get it knit, bring it back. We bring the Supima into Canada, knit it here, dye it here. So then we can control what the hand and the weight is actually going to be like. That's a very complicated thing to do. And, and the mills that are able to do that, that, that and, and, and so two of the biggest compliments that I've heard in the last year were locally doing stuff here that, that the mills saying you're one of the few guys that comes in here that is involved in the design and manufacturing process, but you actually understand how fabric is constructed and what goes into doing that and how shrinkage and behavior is going to impact that. And when I was in Taiwan 18 months ago, that we were with um, some pretty big mills there. And, and they said, you know, there's really two people on the planet that we think really understand technical fabric at the level that you do and one of those is chip wilson and the other one is you and i couldn't believe when they said that but they said for how long you've been in the space ralph and you really understand how to engineer and knit that it's rare that we come across companies that that really understand that process and i think you see it in, in a lot of companies and not just in apparel but you'll see this disconnect of of design and production and sourcing or working independently as opposed to us being able to communicate 
with all the people that are involved exactly what we want. There's a difference there. Was one of the concepts that I picked up from you is the idea of the smallest viable audience or minimum viable audience. Um, and so the idea that just there's a core group of super fans that follow foreign writer or whatever you're doing, whatever, whatever anyone's ACL, anything. And those are the people that basically all you need to care about. Right. So do, do you think, is that, is that how you're approaching what you're doing with foreign writer? Just thinking about, all right, if I only appeal to these 5,000 people. Yeah. And I learned that the hard way <laughs> that when when I was in the music industry that, that in the eighties and nineties, that one of the best parts of that was just being around a lot of artists that, that the ones you could see that really figured out who they wanted their, their community and audience to really be, we got a front row seat for a lot of those guys. And that when I started Dunning and, and knowing that because our products were technical and, and a little more aesthetically cleaner than what you were seeing in golf that, that we knew that there was a certain type of player that we wanted. And that's how we built the company that the guys that, that, that understood less is more, but understood technology that we built a really good following around that at 500 accounts in Canada. All of a sudden we have a thousand guys in the U S and then we made that mistake. I made that mistake of trying to chase that guy that wasn't our guy. We were making products that just didn't fit into that aesthetic. And all of a sudden it's confusing. We were selling in Nordstrom. We were selling in Bloomingdale's. And, and I remember sitting living with my dad and my dad's like, you've really grown this company. And I go, yeah. And I'm absolutely miserable. We have really lost the mark on what this brand was, was meant to be. So, when I wanted to start FR, it was, it was really built around that we had to build good product. We had to do it the right way. And we had to really be focused on doing the right thing, how you interact with your supply chain. So that if you pull the curtain back on us, that there's nothing to hide. So yeah, you, 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 when you've been building this, you've been documenting it all along, sharing everything on LinkedIn, on Instagram, posting pictures of development, not trying to hide everything. No, I think that um, transparency is a huge part of what I believe people are are looking for. So for people that brands that are talking about transparency and they'll say they disclose their supply chain, but when you start to dig deeper and deeper behind the curtain with companies, you start to see where companies will usually compromise what I think that their value should be. So there's a market out there for people that just want to go to big box and buy whatever is cheap and that's okay. And that makes them happy. But for us, if, if people, and we've seen this just for the two weeks that we've been open here in the shop, most of the people that come in are more engaged in just the aesthetic of what we're doing, explain to them how we're doing it. Price doesn't become an issue for those guys. And, and so our hoodies are, $145 Canadian, a crew next $125 Canadian. If, if you were to take any of our products, and this isn't me saying this, this is the feedback that we're getting from people. They're saying, you know, we would put this up against pretty much any high-end brand that's out there, but our prices are just much more accessible to people than 
than they are for um, guys that just want to go to the mall and buy an, an inexpensive hoodie, right? So yeah. I, I think you have to be really focused on who do you want that guy to be? And, and if that person appreciates good quality product that's made a certain way that can, that can relate to what goes into that, a lot of people just they're not there yet with where I think that they're starting to figure out now that long lasting product is better for everybody. But in addition to that, it's hard to make long lasting product. You have to really understand product, how to, how to do that. So, yeah, yeah. so that, that makes our audience small and that's good. I mean, we'll talk about being small for a reason. And I really believe that that's, that's how to run a company today. Yeah, I think that's smart. You know, it's it's interesting. There's a lot of, we were talking the other day, there's a lot of things that you just don't sort of process with what brands are doing that have a bigger effect than just what they seem like. The colors you're using, you know, seasonal colors, right? It's like seasonal colors, like from a sustainable, and look, I'm not a sustainability expert, although I'm interested. Um, but see, seasonal colors, it's just, that's something that then, you know, is either there's got to be a negative side to that, you know, then, then it, that's bigger than just, um, you know, we want to throw something up. It, it is a disaster out there right now, in, in my <laughs> opinion, with, with, with consumer behavior where you can walk through a mall and, and everything's 70% off. And, and I'm not talking about just with, with what's going on with the, the climate of the world, but, this was going on a year ago that you would walk through an outlet mall or whatever. And, 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 you know, I learned this firsthand too on the Dunning side that we would have internal conversations around, Oh, we need to have so many colors in the line because buyers at pro shops felt that that was necessary. And after really digging deep into what was selling through, what do men actually wear? Black, Navy, white, gray, you know, maybe with, with tan chinos or, or, or jeans, but for the most part, guys just wear core colors. And I mm -hmm. think that if, if we're starting to, to understand that buying less is our responsibility for the future of the planet based on just where overconsumption is headed, that what what does the world really not need right now? And I've been pretty vocal about this. The last thing the world needs is another apparel company. Yeah. Everyone starting an apparel company without really understanding what's involved in building apparel. That that it's just stick logos and everything, and 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 that's okay. That makes people happy. But for me, I feel like being in the industry for as long as I have and understanding just what it takes to build product properly. That that you should focus on core colors that your wardrobe should consist of what you're actually going to wear. And, and I'm sure that everyone listening to this, if, if you, if you look in your closet and if the 80, 20 rule applies to everything that, that you are wearing 20% of what's in your, your closet. Mm -hmm. And so for me, what I've tried to do with, with FR as a company and what I'm trying to do personally, if you were to open my cupboard now, there's not much in there. It's just the core colors that we have in the core fabrics that we have. I feel like more and more people are thinking like that. If, if we can control what consumer behavior is going to look like, then I feel like we're doing our part as well as, as making good products. So um, when's the last time that you put on a, 
yellow shirt with kangaroos running across the chest. <laughs> that's, so that's, that's what I'm wearing now. It's funny you say yeah, that. Me too. Um, you know, I'm just talking like this, but I'm actually wearing that shirt. But you get these 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 brands that are plowing out all these products and screen prints and all this stuff for the sake of just trying to get more product out there. That's just not what we're we're trying to do. So, do you feel like there's now with that all being said, do you feel like there's it's difficult to then do performance fabrics knowing that polyester is essentially petroleum, right? And it's just plastic a plastic shirt. I mean, what's the counterpoint to that? So that's where it comes down to that that the majority of really quality fabrics come out of a handful of mills worldwide that have been working on having materials that are environmentally friendly for quite a long time now. So that when you're seeing what what some of the bigger fiber makers and mills are doing, that they're doing everything they can to try and avoid that type of stuff. So that's where price comes into play. That if you want to use Coolmax with Tencel and Lycra in a fabric, that that fabric is going to be seven or eight dollars a yard or a meter. But having Tencel in there, that's much more environmentally friendly than just using polyester or the chemical treatment. That if you can, again, back to sort of all those small things start to add up, right? So if we can use more tech stuff like that, and, and I think even on top of that, if, if you're using technology and materials that, that last a really long time, that don't break down, don't pill, don't end up with, with odor issues, that, but, but it's almost like the organic thing, man, that, that you can really debate organic versus non-organic so if, if you're buying organic cottons from overseas but you bring them over here through shipping and what what's the the bigger impact on the planet as opposed to if you can produce stuff locally that's well made and gonna last longer and and you can debate both sides i mean that's the thing it's it's hard to as a consumer that it's hard to understand what's what's good and what's not and even with, you know, I think that's something that could be put to you. It's like, what do you look for? Is it Tencel? Is it Supima? Are these, you know, do the brand, do those brands mean something in terms of sustainability? Or I just think a lot of there's, it's, it's very confusing just all the way around for everything. Like yeah. we had a big debate about a Christmas tree. Is, is it better to buy a, a real Christmas tree every year? or buy one plastic Christmas tree. I'm not saying I kind of think it's bad to buy a plastic tree, but I, I, I was just trying to figure that out and we couldn't make any sense of it, you know? And, and the same goes for what you're buying. It's like, who knows where anything comes from? And it's hard exactly. to- it, Exactly. Because there's typically, man, there's so many layers that go on on top of stuff. And, 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 and this is the part that, that I think when you're, when you're younger and you're starting a brand, like when I was starting my first brand, I, I didn't know anything, not just about business, but I didn't know anything about actually where fabric and all this stuff came from. What I did understand was what felt right, that, that you knew as you studied certain companies that, that parts of the world were producing things consistently that were well done that you were seeing what was coming out of Italy and what was coming out of England and what was coming out of New Zealand. And so over decades, you start to figure out what is actually legit, 
who's doing it properly, who are the best mills, who are the best factories, and then you become the sum of all parts. And when you can figure that out, then you have to have the ability to get people to, to respect and trust that what you're telling them is real. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's not just an apparel thing, but that's just in general of, of when you pull a curtain back on a lot of companies that a lot of it is just kind of smoke and mirrors, right? So I think for me... Yeah, you know, I was going to say it's a lot. It is smoke and mirrors. A lot of it seems like a lot of marketing people have figured out along the way. Like we have to talk about sustainability one way or another. Yeah, uh, it's like the thing of the moment, and so everyone's sort of jumping on board. And I actually I worked with this brand. I think I've talked about it a little bit before, but he's he was doing this highly sustainable, like the most sustainable brand could possibly be created, but it was super small. And his biggest complaint was it just, it, there's so much bad information out there. No one understands like what we're actually doing. Yeah. And hold on, we can pause. That the, the biggest problem I think is that you've got a lot of companies now that are using sustainability and being responsible. That's their marketing pitch. I don't even like the word marketing anymore. I think marketing is, is also like fast fashion and, and luxury marketing really is just old school cliche funny ads blah 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 if you're making good product and you're doing it the right way then all you're doing is just communicating with people of of here's what we're doing and why we're doing it and you're communicating with the audience that you legitimately want to have a relationship with so the word brand the word marketing the word purpose the word sustainability all of these things now are becoming marketing buzzwords to me that it's expected transparency, being responsible, doing the right thing, being ethical. Those are expected, but it's hard to do that, that you have to make a conscious decision when you're starting your journey or during your journey that, that you're going to say, here's all the core values that we're going to actually follow. And you've heard me talk a lot about supply chain that that there's there's the people in your company that need to trust you there's the people that are your customers and your audience that really need to trust you but who really needs to trust you and that's supply chain and that goes both ways so you know and i've seen this for years up close and, and personal where you've got companies that are just not treating their supply chain in a manner that they would want to be treated and, and i really don't like that that I've been that guy 20 years ago that would get annoyed at a supplier and they made a mistake and you start yelling at them and, and you kind of realize that nobody wants to make these mistakes. Mistakes happen and that's part of manufacturing apparel. But how do you sit together and come up with a solution that works for both of you? And I think what happened during all the COVID stuff where you saw a lot of brands that just cancel all their orders, knowing that these factories had ordered raw materials left these guys hanging it's it's that not just it. I, it's funny i'm glad you brought that up it's not just that they leave them with the like no w- w- they cancel the order and then they ordered the raw materials they borrow the money to fund the production and pay all the yeah. people like you have a po you know you're going to get this big order from xyz big giant brand and then they just canceled on you but you you have to borrow the money, right? To pay that in advance until you get paid from them. It's a crazy, 
I mean, I, I just don't think people understand like how crazy it is the way like the global fashion system is set up. Cause it's very complex and there's a lot of moving parts. And that when you, when you start to understand just how complex all this stuff is that then you become sensitive to how supply chain actually works. So, and, and, and everything in a company is connected that, that this idea of connecting people and how everything is connected that when, when a brand treats a supply chain poorly, won't pay them for whatever reason, then that has that domino effect on they can't pay their people. And then those people can't feed their families, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think you've got a lot of companies now that talk about using fair trade certified factories, which is a good thing that, that those are monitored, but how you make things ethically, what your supply chain looks like being responsible, being transparent, a lot of brands were doing this stuff even in the early 90s. This was normal. This is how things were done. Things get out of control in the 2000s. You're making all over the world this acceptable to lie in the industry as, as people were doing. That takes me back to discovering ACL. That, that, that for me was, it was all the stuff I loved about apparel in the 90s, why I wanted to be in it. But then reading about all the brands that you were, that you were talking about, Red Wing, Maker, Artifact, Alden, all those companies, Rogue, Territory, all these guys. That for me was just a real eye-opener of this isn't new. That, that What people are talking about right now, man, this is not new. Brands in the 60s and 70s and 80s that were making product a certain way, that's the way it always was. But we've come full circle now yeah. on you can't be that way anymore or you're going to get flushed out And the next, the next year is going to be interesting to watch how people actually have to deal with this, the state of retail, how people are connecting to brands and companies. The world's different, but it's truly history repeating itself. It, I had a conversation earlier today with a friend that works in the, in the business. And we were saying that everything theoretically should be better going forward because this pushed a lot of brands to evolve in a way that they wouldn't otherwise or form a direct relationship with their customers. And while that can be bad for wholesalers, you know, look at what you're doing with, you know, you have this 325 square foot shop in Toronto people, you know, right now it's like, while we're recording, you're getting curbside pickup and people in a normal time could be coming in. I don't know what it's like in Canada. It's probably normal in Canada, but um, as compared to here, but people will come in, they talk to you, you're in there. It's like, you're the guy that went to the mill. You're the guy that had the idea. You're manning the shop. I mean, theoretically it's not feasible in the long term, but it's pretty cool. Like that, so, I mean, this is like what everything I'm about is being able to walk into a shop and talk to you and you're the guy, right? And I think that, that once you've built that foundation and it's taken me a long time to, to really put all this stuff together, but once you build that foundation, then, you know, a, a company doesn't have a culture. A company is a culture. And if your team that, that we've got a very small team here that are starting to watch me say, well, here's all the stuff we need to do. And when things go wrong, here's how we're going to handle it, that they all start to talk the same way now and they understand why we're in business. And that over the last couple of weeks, because we're launching this brand unification workshop tomorrow, that I've been doing a lot of talks to local MBA schools 
and, and kids that are, are getting ready to leave that are reading about my posts on LinkedIn and they're going, you're, you're really passionate about how business should be conducted. Yeah, I am very passionate about how business can be conducted and that young people are sending us their resumes now in our little 325 square foot shop that, that want to be a part of what we're doing. And, and some of these guys that, that are already out of school, they're working for big firms. They don't want to do that. They, they want to be a part of something that they, they believe in. So this, this shift in, in how companies need to function, this goes so much deeper than apparel, as we both know, this future of, of how businesses need to function, that it's got to start with someone, right? So if you look at the brands where their founders had this vision when they started, and they've been able to carry that through even after they've retired, this is usually why when you see an acquisition, if the founder is not there, that the brand's direction typically changes. But the companies that, that remain focused on that culture, they usually have long-term success, right? So the, the rules now, as I said earlier, man, they're different, but I think they're the same. So two things I want to ask you about, just moving on from that, which is it's connected, I think. all of what you're doing now is a culmination of a lot of things you've done in the past, but it it also seems to be informed to some degree by mistakes you've made. For sure. Things you've learned. What could you talk a little bit about things you've screwed up and what you learned from them? I mean, it's, I feel like it's a topic no one wants to ever own or, or admit to when, it, it, it's literally the reason we, we did this workshop we've got coming out that, that that documentary talks a lot about what what those mistakes teach you down the road to really be able to focus on. And so some people, they just they don't they don't want to admit just mistakes that they've made, even though it makes you a much better business person. So I, I think the first mistake for me that I made was just not understanding that the, the connection of, of how all the people that you touch, that you have to remember that, that the business of whatever you're doing is always going to evolve around people and that you should treat people the way that you want to be treated. And, and so decades ago, as, as I was a lot younger and interacting with people or with factories and you would get upset over stuff and you would just sort of act around ego instead of what's, what's the right thing to do here for everyone involved. I think the part of, of what you talked about with what's the audience that you really want and, and having a small audience to start with and allowing that to grow organically, that marketing in a sense of, of just putting smoke and mirrors on stuff, those days are over. But if you can just communicate properly that then communication and, and, and the new way of marketing will take care of itself, knowing who you are and who you want to do business with, what that audience looks like. Um, I, I think it's, that, kind of a, it's kind of a tough question to put you on the spot to say, no, like, but, but, it's, but it's, 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 it's such a good question, Michael, because not many people would even want to ask that question. Right. So, and I think that, that, people don't understand how brands actually grow, that, that brands grow through discovery. I discovered you, you and I, when we first met, it's like, I, I mean, I felt like I'd known you for already 10 years because of just knowing what you stood for. So when, when you and I spent five hours on a golf course that, yeah, we're, we think the same way because we both sort of understand 
what has always made brands, I think, relevant. Um, and I think but, it's for, for us, it's we share a, a perspective on the world and how maybe clothing brands should, and people listening to this, how brands should behave and how they should manufacture and all these other things. But I, I do think it's still fairly niche to be, you know, we're, we're I don't want to say we're at the top end of the market, but we're part of the market that's probably not normal, but it seems like more people are embracing in a way. Yeah. The, the thing that I'm hearing from a lot of younger people in particular that, that are still getting their careers going, that, that just don't have a lot of money to spend on stuff. So they're, so where are they spending money on? They're spending money on experiences as we all know, but they're also now, wanting to buy a product that they know that they can buy into the company, understand the company, but that they are going to keep for a long time. That wasn't like that three, four or five years ago. So if, if, if brands like Patagonia and Adernone and Tentry of, and, and, and even what your friend is on a Bombas, that if those companies have set the path for doing the right thing, that's important. And it, it's allowed for younger people to say, yeah, I am going to invest my money in, in product that I know is well-made, but also brands that I, I can trust. I mm-hmm. think that that's important. So, you know, those, those rules now I think are, are much more defined and, and that that has been great to, to see that, but everything still needs to come back to, in my opinion, you have to make good product. And I think that, that, the difference that you and I have over a lot of people in, in this industry is that we both understand what is actually good product, what's involved in making good product. Why does product last a long time? So good product, how it's made all the behind the scenes stuff that those things have to add up. Right. Yeah. And for, for me, you know, a lot of times, even as I, as I grew in the business, right, I started to realize I didn't always know what everything was, but I, I could tell who was for real and who wasn't for real, or I thought I could. And a lot of times, like people like you, like I would put my trust in someone like you to do the right thing for me as a consumer, right? And then feel good about advocating for that, which I think, you know, and I think now is a better time than ever for people to be able to have that connection, you know, via social media or whatever, via a podcast. I mean, you know, we're just having like a very real conversation about the things that you want to inject into your brand and why you're doing the things that you're doing. And people can connect with that in a way that in other times couldn't, and with a bigger brand certainly wouldn't be able to get to anything real. You know, I listen to a lot of executives on podcasts and a lot of times they, they're not really saying anything. Thing. You know, they're just, they're like pro athletes. They're so good at just giving the soundbite and staying on script that to me, it's like, yeah, this is, you know, it's sort of empty calories. Not saying like what we're doing is more potent than that, but that's just how I feel sometimes. So it's, it's interesting to hear you say that. Well, cause I, I think that, that, that at my age now, I mean, I could, you know, just kind of stop working and do whatever, but Play golf. You Play could be golf, out, ride my uh, bike. Yeah, you could be out riding your bike in the snow all year round. Exactly. But I think that to build a company, I think to build a company the way that it should be built, that's kind of worth doing. And and so if 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 
if we build this and people say, I really respect the way that Ralph builds product. I really respect the fact that, that what they're making is, is legitimately good quality. They know the behind the scenes that we're not going to fake any of that. Then, then it's worth getting up every day and doing this. But I've been in apparel for 30 years, as you know, man, I, I've never felt this level of, 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 of excitement when I get up in the morning to do what we're doing. And within just two weeks of, of really getting this thing open, the, the response from people that are really engaged in, in how we're doing things and making things, this is unbelievable. Like this is, this is truly worth doing. So how that's great different than what's how, great, how great is it to do something small? I, it's, it is completely different than anything that, because when you're starting other brands, you're small, but you always want to be big, right? And, and that getting that mindset of too much growth can kill you and not enough growth can kill you, right? That, that you know, we've, we've got a team of people that we deal with here and there's, there's overhead and you have to be a company that is going to be profitable. And I think that when you're small and you're focused on doing it the way that you want to build a company, that, that purpose and profit can coexist creative and business can coexist. That's a very different way of, of approaching what small means that if people that, that want to start a brand, but it's their dream to take it public and, and that's fine if that's what you want to do without really knowing just what's involved in, in doing that with some people. But for me, keeping it small and, and, and as we grow, if you can still act small, and still run your team and, and have the values that, that you've built operate the same way, then you're still thinking small for a reason. Right. So it's, I love that. That's cool. I, I, I like that. I like that too. I think the idea of at least trying to state, maintain that connection to what you're doing or what you love about what you're doing is worth it. And just trying to be big for the sake of, you know, growth or whatever is uh, is a little misguided. So it's cool to see what you're doing. Yeah. And I mean, you, you can imagine over the last year since, since I left Dunning that you get a lot of people that are in the, the VC and private equity space that read about what I'm doing and where are you going to take this? And, and are you looking for outside capital? And we would love to personally invest in what you're doing and et cetera, et cetera. And saying, you know, we're not, we're not going down that road. We're not, we're not ready for that and, and financing it on your own when it's your own money and you're writing those checks every day and, and doing that, that keeps stuff pretty real too. But um, as soon as you take on investment, as soon as you take on partners, um, the rules change and, and some partners that, that come into a company, they come in for the right reasons and, and some partners they'll have their, their own agenda. And, and that's a mistake that, that everyone has made going through their, their business career too. So what what is one of the biggest things if you could tell people of of what you should really focus on if you're if you're building a company that being yourself being authentic to who you are that's exactly what i've always admired about what you've done i think that's absolutely critical but focus is the toughest thing i think for a lot of people to do to just really stay focused on on who you are and, and why you're in business in the first place if you can maintain that focus, then I think you make decisions for the right reasons. If you get big, it's hard to do that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Ralph, it's been great catching up with you and hearing about Foreign Rider, and I'm, I'm excited to see what comes for you, and, and uh, thanks for talking. All right, thanks, man.